Welcome to this week's Treasury Career Corner podcast, where I interview treasury professionals about their treasury careers. Each and every week, I talk to treasurers about how they've built their careers, where they are now, and where they see both themselves and the treasury profession going to next. This week's show, delighted to be joined by Gary Slaughter, currently the interim treasurer at Eddie Stobart Logistics. Now, I'll get Gary to describe the business, but just giving a couple of headlines. I mean, huge logistics group. I mean, some of the numbers kept us going through the COVID crisis. I mean, I'm just looking down here. Two, well, nearly 3,000 vehicles, 43 centres, 6,600 employees. But also, you know, Gary can describe the business as it is now and logistics and a lot of things that happened. He's got a rich and deep history. We've known each other for many years, and I'm going to take him right back to the dim, distant past, if you can remember, way back when, to the days when he started Grant Thornton, before he even discovered the joy that is Treasury. Gary, it's over to you. It's your show, sir. Over to you, sir. Thank you very much, Mike. That's a, <laughs> a lovely introduction as ever. I think it's, as I was saying to one of my colleagues the other day, when I started off at Grant Thornton, we had pencil and paper. There were no computers. In fact, when I started... And some people will be shocked at this sort of thing. When I started, the first thing you got was a desk, a telephone, and an ashtray. Nice. That was a, a very different office from the one we might see nowadays. But I guess, you know, why did I end up there? Or why why didn't end up in chartered accountancy in the first instance, which was quite easy to answer because I'd been to the uh, University Career Centre and it was 10 minutes till opening time and the chartered accountancy form was eight pages long and the Greater Manchester Police application form was 32 pages long. So <laughs> I, knew which, I knew which one I was going to go for. So, yeah, I joined. I mean, really joining a, a, a mid-tier firm. I know people go, why did you, why did you join there? It's because... And I guess this is a real treasurer's type thing to think because I want to be in the thick of the action. When you join a firm that's not quite so big, you're getting more responsibility early on. You're not spending the first three years of your career auditing the stock section of BP. You're getting right into there. And like I say, that's a real treasurer's attitude. And in fact, after a couple of years, I realized that I didn't want to be a chartered accountant, really. It was a treasurer. It was something else I wanted to be. I hadn't quite got there. And you all want to do something involving finance and finance proper. And I want to be at the heart of looking forward in the business rather than looking back. So I ended up doing a little bit of a stint in, in corporate finance. But like many corporate finance people in, in 1990, when there was a little bit of a recession on, I ended up in the insolvency department because it was just the flip side of the same coin. So, and to be honest, I think everybody should spend a couple of years working in the insolvency department. Because you can see just how quickly things can go very, very badly wrong. Companies not collecting their money in. Companies just saying they're investing in something when they're actually just spending it. Giving big strategy with poor execution. There's a whole load of things, just basic risk management. So we're beginning to see a little bit of a theme emerging here as we as, as we go on. So I spent that while in insolvency, but then decided, look, I need some I need some time in industry. I need to learn how a business works. I need to get into the nuts and bolts. And eventually I ended up at a company called TNN, Turn Renewal, who at the time were a big automotive components business, but were also the world's largest manufacturer of asbestos-related products. I always end up in the best places. In fact, I end up down in asbestos mine at one time in Zimbabwe matter. That's another another string to my bow. Like I say, you know, where angels fear to tread, that's where I'll turn up. Now, by this time, this is we're now at nineteen ninety five, and I was eight years in the profession, and I thought I knew everything about everything. 
I thought, look, I know it all. And I, I, ordered, I started off, the, they got me to do an audit of Nat West Bank Line, which is still going. It's RBS Bank Line, I think it is now. But Nat West Bank Line. So back in 1995, they sent me upstairs to the Treasury Department and I went and audited the system and said, these are the things I think are you know, slight weaknesses, control issues, et cetera, et cetera. All went very fine. I said, that was very good, Gary. Can you, can you now just go and audit the Treasury Department? So I said, yeah, sure, I can. Like I say, I knew everything about everything. So I went upstairs and uh, sat there and uh, Paul Arnold, the uh, the treasury manager, with all the usual happiness of a Manchester City supporter about him, sat and, and kindly answered my questions. Lovely fella. And he uh, was sat there and I said, so what is it you actually do here in treasury? And he said, well, we, we manage financial risk. I said, that's very, very good. I said, so, so how do you do that? I mean, when you talk about financial risk, what sort of thing are you talking about? And he said, well, mainly it's foreign exchange. And we use mainly forward contracts. And I went, oh, right, yeah, forward contract. That's, uh, that's the market's view of where currency is going to be in a few months' time. And he just put his hands over his eyes as if to say, oh, I sent another <laughs> idiot along. I didn't know the difference between the forward contract and the future. And I sat there and I suddenly realised that I knew absolutely nothing about absolutely nothing. And I thought, you know what? I should really learn about what I'm talking about before I open my big, fat, stupid gob. And so... A couple of months later, the head of audit got this brochure thing through the post saying the auditor and treasury. And it was a conference down in London. And he said, look, it's fancy going on this. I said, yeah, sounds great. I'll go down. So I came down to London and walked in. And you know, it was very enjoyable. But of course, the ACT had their stand there. And I went and I looked at the syllabus. And this might sound very, very sad. But I opened it up and I looked at it and I thought, same what? This is what I actually wanted to do all along. Oh, it wasn't yeah. all the debits and credits. It wasn't all the SSAPs. It was proper real finance, real finance with proper money and yeah. making businesses happen and planning for the future and seeing where the cash flows are going to go and how you're going to fund and invest in this business. This is it. This is what I want to do. This is what the said I couldn't do. And I can. Yeah. I want to do it. So I got very enthusiastic about the whole thing. Yeah, rightly so. And it was one of those things where I've never enjoyed a set of exams in my life, apart from those ones, mm. which meant that I got through as easily as I could. Because with the ACT exams, I was studying stuff on a Sunday and I could go into work and implement on a Monday. Yeah, I'm passionate about it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, if you understand it and know it, if you understand why you're doing this, that, and the other, why you're transferring money here, why you're entering into that contract, what a swap really is, how the swap mechanics work, what the, what the maths behind it are. They teach you how to read the page of the Financial Times. How clever does that feel? Uh, uh. So all of these things, suddenly it became real life. This is what I really did. And that was that was it. There was never going to be any looking back from there because now I could start to be involved with the real nuts and bolts running of the running of the business. So I took my treasury exams. You might notice a couple of years in common. I took, I took my chartered accountancy exams in 1990, and I took my treasury exams in 1996. Both of them, big football finals. Mm. Both of them where England did quite well. So for 1990 in Italia, I put it this way. One of the people on my course, she didn't pass her exams. And she was on a reset course with another friend of mine who didn't pass his exams, whereas... I had. And she said, you know what? Life isn't fair. That Gary Slaughter just sat there drinking beer and watching football and he went and passed. So I thought if it worked in 1990, it'll work in 1996. And it did. So it was, but I guess the only reason was because A, I enjoyed it. And the other thing was, 
With the ACT, now this might sound really, really cheesy, but they're big enough to be a professional organisation, but small enough to care, small enough that you feel a part of that body. Mm. In bigger professional bodies, you you can sometimes feel a little bit like a number. Mm -hmm. But in Treasury, you actually feel like this is your profession. And very often, as I found through my career, you might be the only member of the ACT someone ever meets. So the entire view of that organization is formed by you and your performance, your behavior, how you get on, what you bring to the party. You're an ambassador. You're a real representative. So that went very, very well. I joined the Treasury Department under the tutelage of a fantastic treasurer, called Matthew Topham. Really, really, really clever board. He taught me an awful lot of how to think about treasury in the context of the business. You, you, you think you have to think of things, what's the real risk in the business, not how can I use this really fancy instrument that some bank has turned up with to manage risk because you'll go wrong. And he, he taught me, one of the lessons he taught me was a very, very simple lesson. If you don't understand something, say you don't understand something because you will never look more stupid than if you don't understand it, you implement it and it all goes wrong and you can't explain why. Mm. I can remember uh, there was one conference, must have been about four or five or ten years ago, and there was myself and the great Riyadh Hamad, who was Darab Tech, um, and Declan Soy, and the three of us were sat there and someone was going about Bitcoin. And this was sort of in the early days of it. And I said to, said to Riyadh, I said, do you understand it? And he went, no, I haven't a clue. I said, Declan, he said, no, I haven't a clue. Between the three of us, we had about about 90 years of treasury experience. Yeah, but we not could we were quite happy to admit, look, I don't understand this. Mm. And so, and sometimes if you don't understand things, there's a reason why not. It's because they don't stack up. Mm. Um, and again, one of the things I love about our profession is that we question. We don't just take on face value because we can't. Because if we get it wrong, there can be really disastrous consequences. Mm, mm, mm. It's it's not like if you sort of get your debits and credits to the wrong place and someone has to make a journal adjustment. If you get something wrong, that can mean real pounds, shillings and pence. If that means real money, that can mean real people's jobs. That can mean the future of the business. So there's a little bit of, you know, it concentrates the mind a little bit, but it's a brilliant place to be. So I was at TNN for, oh, in total about three years, and they got acquired by a, a US outfit called Federal Mogul, and they asked for volunteers for redundancy. I seen a position advertised, and I went for it, and I got it. Hmm. So I not only got the new position, I got my voluntary redundancy as well, which worked rather nicely. Nice. So it's a little bit of, little bit of luck sometimes. Hmm. But TNN had been sort of a business that was ripe for being acquired. Once they'd nailed down the asbestos liabilities – then it was definitely in play and it yeah, was exactly. it was going to happen. The US company acquired it and they didn't need two treasury departments, didn't need one in the US and one in the UK. So it was clear that it was, you know, that the writing was on the wall. I went to, to Scapa Group and it was actually a very, very similar business in many ways in that it started out in the in the in the mill towns of Lancashire. And the operating units were very autonomous. People were being given their own head to do what they want. They were invested in and told that. You deliver return the investment. Very, very different from the more centralised model at CNN. However, and we were putting in place a number of sort of areas to coordinate around the business. I put in a, a, a designed system myself for how to do the the foreign exchange cover, and you know it was it was something that I could really get my teeth into. But after about 12, 13 months, I realised, hang on, this is going this is going the same way as, as TNN. 
This right. is going to be an acquisition target. And you know, I saw an opportunity somewhere else. And I'll be honest, I thought, I don't think there's going to be a role for me here for much longer. And the person who replaced me was gone within, I think, about four or five months because it sold off 60% of the business gone. and yeah. the business shrunk and it didn't need, a, didn't need a treasury operations manager anymore. So I thought, right. I went off to, to my new role, which was in many ways sort of the start of the focus of, of my career, which has been which has ended up being special situations. Matalan, big retailer, just recently IPO'd on the London market. They've been told by Warburg's look, you need a treasury function. And so I, I came in to set that up. And it was a business that was growing incredibly quickly. Now, high growth situations can become very high risk situations because you can end up running out of working capital. And there were a number of areas that I was able to address in the business, you know, just simple things like they bought Ford a whole load of US dollars because they were buying mainly from the Middle East. Most things were priced in US dollars. What the business wasn't aware of at the time was, was currency swaps. So they've run out of sterling and holding dollars that they might not have needed for another 12, 18 months and said, we're running out of sterling. I said, well, why don't you swap back from dollars and sterling? Ah, that takes an FX risk. No, it doesn't. You're working off the same swap. It's just the interest rate differential. Ah, didn't know that. And you're thinking, wow, I can bring some value. I've done something that's useful. So we had, you know, eventually, so we freed up the cash and and, uh, carried the business on. But it was real, real high growth. I mean, that operate, I mean, there was, at one point, there was opening a new unit every two weeks. You know, these big sheds out of town. It was, and just the whole supply chain, if you like, the whole logistics chain of the business was stretched. Things like we struggled to get enough card readers for the stores. Just simple little things, but this is where you know this is where you really start to start to realise a you're at the heart of things, but b these are very practical things that you're dealing with. These are things in life that happen. So as well as doing all the all the sort of you know in our in our exams, you might do all the fancy darn structured bonds, but in real life, you've got to do the things like make sure there's enough card readers, make sure you've got enough cash in the tills. How does the money get collected out of the tills? Checking how long it takes for the card acquirer to give you their money. We did a bank tender and we got the card acquiring cash down from a three-day cycle to a one-day cycle. We sent off the files at night. We got the cash the next morning. That's a big win for a business. And that's something that really, really matters. And again, that's why I love being at Treasury because everything in the company will always end up as being cash. So if you're sat at the middle of that web, if you're sat at the heart of the cash, you will always be at the heart of the business. One of the things, sorry, I'm going to jump in here, Gary. And people would tell this, you've got this passion about Treasury, everything else. Now, if they, they're looking through your LinkedIn profile, we've got guys listening to this from across the world. Hmm. And, you you know, if they look, they'll see that you've been referred to as a troubleshooter in the past. You'd love to jump hmm. into these situations, yeah. sort the stuff out, hmm. get in, sort it out, move on. In, in, in a positive way, you were making, you know, some quite, a number of moves relatively early stages of your career now there are people listening today you know i spoke to a lady yesterday she's been sort of four years with an xge company and you know spun off and you know she's thinking about the next move that'll be another three years and maybe it'll be five years you were making these moves every couple of years boom in year and a half sort it out great next talk us through as you know if you can carry on this theme but i want people to understand why you've got the guts to do it because it's it's great you know it's fantastic it's not like oh i'm a job popper it's quite the opposite you go in make a change right i'm done guys here you go is it fixed is yeah. that your ethos it's i mean in many ways 
it wasn't necessarily an intentional thing. It wasn't what I'd set out to, to do. It was, you know, I was looking to to establish a career. But as I always say to my daughters, your career path is up to you. Hmm. HR departments aren't there to, to, to look after you. They are there to get the best out of you for the business. That's what they do. And in, in many ways, they're the, they're the maintenance department that looks after the machines. The machines just happen to be humans. So if you think that, like I say, it wasn't deliberate, but it was how I, at the time, saw my path to where I wanted to get to. At the time, I wanted to be a CFO. That's where I wanted to be when I grew up. And I thought, I'll try and get as much experience as I can under my belt. Mm-hmm. Now, I could have got that at going into one business and staying there for years, a business that had you know, a growth path, something that something I'll be able to do. I didn't necessarily have that every place. Plus, you reach a stage where you kind of stop adding value. Now, being an employee is a two-way thing. And companies will, the only reason why a company ever employs an employee is because the value that employee brings is greater than the cost of employing them. Simple as that. And the lower that cost is for the greater value add, the happier the employer is. That's, that's, how, that's how life goes. So sometimes I've thought, am I still adding value here? And as we go through, you'll see that I've had people who've, who've come in behind me who've been absolutely fantastic at doing the job and you bring in the right people. I mean, it's a little bit like private equity. Private equity will very often look for its exit route even before they started. And as someone who's interested in their own career, I'm interested in other people's careers. And I want to make sure there is always a replacement for me. There's always someone who can step into my shoes in some ways to make life easier for myself. Because if that person's coming through and I can pass on the work to them, I can focus and concentrate on other things. So it's very much a it's a dynamic situation. So I came into Matalan, I set the, the Treasury function up, wrote the Treasury policy. I believe that the ACT still uses it as an example of a good SME policy. Put that in place, got the structures in place, got the people in place. And in some ways it became where it should have been. I mean Matalan's not a complex business. It buys clothes and sells clothes. That's you know, that's that's what's at the heart of it. And that's its business. Its business is not treasury, its business is retail. And one thing I did learn about retail that retail is all about buying, not about selling. You know? So you're, you're looking at your supply chains and how you fund those supply chains. I mean, what we found was that in the uh, Far East crisis in, in 1999, we were able to maintain our supply chains going because we gave our suppliers letters of credit. Now, other buyers were just paying cash. And the problem was the suppliers couldn't get the, raw ma- couldn't get the materials to actually make the clothes with. We gave, it was a little bit more expensive, but we gave them letters of credit which they could then dash down the local bank with, have, you know, say an HSBC or a Barclays letter of credit and immediately get their funding. So you're not just thinking in terms of cost, you're thinking in terms of commerciality. How does this business operate? What makes money? Well, it made money through buying and selling clothes and someone had to manufacture those clothes. Mm. And so they supported their supplier base and they did very, very well with it. So as ever, in every single role that you go to, you're learning all the way through. You want to pick up and pick up as much as you possibly can. I was then asked to to replicate what I'd done for Treasury by setting the shared service centre. And we made a start on that. But to be honest, I didn't quite see the rest of my life running running AP and payroll. And what I had done was fortunately had brought a very good assistant behind me, uh, Jill, who was absolutely brilliant. And she stayed there for, gosh, I think it was about 20 years 
after me and so it was, it was a little a couple of year or two ago when she I'm still in touch with her you know that was again putting in place because you always want to leave a place better than it was when you came in mm. so I put in place a treasury function that I felt was so easy to run it didn't really need me I was too expensive for that treasury function and I guess that one thing I've always felt is that if you build the right experience and if if you build a good, you know, the right achievements, you need never be af- afraid of being un- unemployed. Hmm. You, know, you will always be able to, you always will. It gives you confidence. And so Matalan put everything in place and I felt in many ways, look, my, my, my work here is done. And so I moved on to, I, I then got a, a call to go to, uh, to Princess in Liverpool. And again, there was a, there was a particular issue. That's why I went in for, uh, for, for, that, for that issue, which was they implemented SAP and there seemed to be issues with foreign exchange. So I sat and scratched my head and, and my, my colleague, Catherine, Catherine Medley, who is the assistant treasurer there, who's fantastic and is still the group treasurer there. We sat and scratched our heads and couldn't quite work out because it, 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 it's been a foreign exchange problem. Then we looked at some of the processes. And again, we're getting back to just the the basics here. We looked at how the bank reconciliations were done. And the Sterling side was done in in, in Liverpool and the the foreign exchange side was done over in Bradford. And it didn't quite tie it together. But we still couldn't work out what the problem was. And there was one day Catherine brought me the the bank reconciliation for the euro account sign-off. And I said, hang on, the balance on this account is £7,950 or whatever it was in Sterling. But zero in euros. Zero can't equal 7,950. <laughs> with my maths, I can work that one out. Yeah. So why was that? So was the, the FX difference. Was, well, it shouldn't be because everything has everything we do in our business has a known foreign exchange rate. It has to because the nature of the business is very, very thin margins. So again, we're getting back to the commerciality here. You're working on extremely thin margins, maybe as low as 1%. So you cannot afford for there to be a foreign exchange difference. The second that the deal was done, the foreign exchange cover was put in place. So we had lots and lots of very small deals. And we looked at the reconciliations and there were some transactions where there wasn't a rate, where there should have been. And I said, it's just a simple cash book issue. I said, all we need to do is have effectively a four-column cash book, or six columns, really. You've got your euro value. You've got your exchange rate that we know and that is on a foreign exchange contract. And you've therefore you've got your sterling value. That's how it should work. And it was simple. It was an accounting problem. I can remember I started off doing a, I started off doing a sort of a spreadsheet in the system to show Catherine you know, how I thought it should work. She went, no, no, Gary. Gary, you've done your bit. You've done the thinking. Now leave the heart, leave the work to the grown-ups. Will you? <laughs> so uh, that's what I did. I sort of thought that's, that felt again an achievement. I felt quite happy, and it got the it got the business back into stability. Mm. Got the uh, the treasury function back into stability. I identified another few things about the business on the on the transactions that were a, you know a little bit of an issue, and we solved those. And after about after a couple of years. I said to Catherine, I said, you can run this easily. You can run this in your sleep. And she said, probably could, Gary. And so that's when I got a phone call elsewhere. And someone said, look, Michelin in, uh, in Stoke-on-Trent looking for someone. So I went there. And that was really interesting. So I think this was the first time when I'd really operated as core part of a multinational group. Prince is part of a, a multinational group, Mitsubishi Corporation. But again, 
quite autonomous, whereas Michelin was very much your real multinational and had a lot of dealings with Switzerland, where the finance centre was. And I got in there and that was taking over from someone who was retiring. So it was already an established system in there. But the real issue that the business was facing at the time was on its pension scheme, its defined benefit pension scheme. And with the previous treasurer having been a trustee, I then became a trustee. This was really interesting because it was not, if you like, standard treasury stuff, but it was all the stuff we'd learned about in our exams, about you know investment theory, uh, how you know ca- how capital markets work. Because in essence, a defined benefit scheme is just a, a big bond portfolio because you've got your cash flows and your liabilities. And you've got a reasonable idea of when those cash flows are going to happen. And the actuaries will advise you on essentially when those cash flows stop, when someone dies, or then then it becomes spouse's pension, and then how long the spouse is expected to live for. So it's all sort of very mathematical and very Bond-like. And this was something I hadn't dealt with before, but I knew the theory. I might not know the words, but I know the tune. So I got myself really involved in this because I thought, right, this is this is a massive risk, and it was at group level a very, very high risk because there were two big pension schemes that were really could have could harm the group if if they really had a bad time uh, in the US and 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 the UK. So I got myself really stuck into there. And again, I felt I added value. It was an interesting situation to be in because as a as a pension trustee, you have a legal responsibility to the pensioners, not to the company. Yeah. So even though you're an employee, if the company feels that a particular strategy would be the best thing to do in the company's interest, but you believe that a particular strategy is in the best interest of the pensioners, You've got to act in the best interest of the pensioners. And again, one of the one of the key things that that started to come through is I learned that sort of independence of mind is very, very important. Like I say, if you don't understand it, don't do it, no matter how much people are saying you should or you shouldn't do it. And treasurers have to be very, very independent because they have to really judge things and say, right, is this the right thing or the wrong thing to be doing? And most of all, you really start to understand what ethics mean. And that, that, that crops up later in my, in my career. Ethics are incredibly important. Without them, we have absolutely nothing. You can have all the technical skills in the world. You can have all the abilities in the world. But if you don't have the ethics, we don't want you. And that's one of my big messages all the time. So, so I got the pension fund restructured. I was also involved in the centralization of a number of functions. We were going to centralize the treasury function into Manchester for the whole of whole of Europe. We started off in that exercise and it was decided that actually it would end up in, in Switzerland. And that wasn't quite at the time. Two young children, that's what that wasn't where I really want to be. My wife wasn't too happy. And so she said, look, I think that probably you know, again Time for a move. You've done your time. Yeah. So which you know, but I carried on so I I got a phone call from someone saying, Gary, Jarvis. I said, yes. I said, look, it's a big restructuring. And I thought, I like the sound of this. Yeah, rise up your street. Background. <laughs> this is a challenge. And I'm always up for a challenge. I said, this one is not going to be easy. It wasn't, but it was really the springboard 
to the next stage of my, my career. Jarvis was a tough going. It was a business that had been through some very, very difficult times and continuing to go through difficult times. It was going through a debt for equity swap. It had a strategy which hadn't succeeded. As a, as a CEO once worked with said, businesses don't fail due to lack of strategy, they fail due to lack of execution. And that is what this, that's what has happened there. I was working for the first time with an interim team. The CFO, Alistair Marnik, was fantastic. And Alan Lovell, the CEO. I mean, these were people I really, really learned something from, really learned how to understand things. Shell Carlson, who was there as well. These were experienced people who I was just drinking it in and understanding, how's this whole thing going to work? Mm. So we did the debt for equity swap. It was very clear that we still needed more working capital. But at the time, that business was toxic and we couldn't get any from anywhere. And so this is where, you know, never throw away a business card. So a friend of a friend said, speak to these people. They used to be at Commerce Bank, then out an outfit called Burdale Financial, and they might be able to help. And I can remember the meeting now. It was it was 10th of February, 2000 and 2006. I went in to see them, start to describe the business, talked through. Fortunately, by then, I had a, an understanding of how commercially the business worked. Mm. And I remember Nigel Hogg saying, after an hour, he said, yeah, I think we've got something here. To the extent that Alan Lovell phoned me up halfway during the meeting and I ignored his call. Then I explained to him afterwards why. And he said, <laughs> you probably made the right choice. Judgment calls are one of, are one of those things that you, you, you have to make. So I managed to get an asset-backed facility in place. It, it took about four months, during which time the trading results worsened, not improved. So each month that went by, it was getting more and more difficult to get this deal over the line. But eventually I did. And we got it over just in time because there was a there was a working capital facility in place that was very expensive. It was LIBOR plus 18% at the time, plus a big exit fee for the bank if we didn't refinance at a cheaper rate to protect the shareholders mm. at all. I also spent during that period a lot of time with lawyers and learned my way around LMA documentation. That was an invaluable lesson. I also had a very good friend, Josh Mystery, who uh, he is Mr. Documentation. I mean, if anybody can can review a set of documentation, it's him. Whilst watching cricket, and it's a fantastic skill that he has. So we got through that particular bit of financing. Within a few weeks, it became quite apparent that the financing wasn't enough. And Deloitte were brought in to, to, to do a review. And it was a tough, tough, tough time. We decided to go for an equity raise that would be an investment equity raise. And we had to prove that to the investigating accountants. That proved to be more difficult because someone who shall remain nameless made a whacking great error on a spreadsheet. I remember the phone call I got data clock at 8, 8.30 at night from a gentleman at Deloitte saying, Gary, the spreadsheet that you did. Oh, that's right. That was vague, yeah. There seems to be a slight error in it. That slight error effectively doubled the headroom that we had in the asset back facility, made us look extremely liquid and solvent, and was wrong. It took me six weeks to get everyone back on board. We eventually completed the, the equity raise in March 2007. However, once we'd done the equity raise, the business was now liquid, stable, and heading in the right direction. Not only that, I'd been fortunate enough to, I inherited a, a young gentleman called Russell Hall, who really wasn't enjoying his work. And I think the business, you know, there were redundancies happening. I think he was next on the list. And I said, look, would he be able to help you out? And 
just like me, he found his niche. He found yeah. where he wanted to be. And it was brilliant working with him. We need an extra pair of hands. And that's where the the, the brilliant Kate Telford, or she's now Kate Smedley, turned up. And between the three of us, with our other colleagues who were there, I think we managed to do a really, really good job. We set a treasury function up that was that was robust, that worked for the business. The cash flow forecasting that Russ put in place was just, it was masterful. And so when John O'Kane, the FD, said to me in December 2007, Gary, we've told the city we're going to cut costs by 50%. Can you have a look at your department and see where, who's, nice to ha- who's nice to have and who's really, really needed? Mm. Well, Mary, who did the cash, was really, really needed. Me, who ponced about a bit and sort of, you know, attended a few meetings, wasn't really all that necessary. So it was a see you, don't want to be you. And we parted company very, very happily. To which I, I then went off to uh, to Speedy Hire in Newton Willows. To be honest, that was probably not quite the right move. Not big enough. At the time. Yeah. It was, the thing is that it wasn't quite me that it needed. It was actually three people that were needed. And I realized this after just a space of a couple of months and I was in. And I also sort of ended up crossing between two CFOs because the old CFO who'd recruited me was actually on his notice period anyway. And a new CFO started. And I said, new CFO said, look, do you know what? Having, Having spent a few months looking at this business, this is what you need. And this is not, this is not me. And for the price of me, you can employ these three people. So I said, I think this is what you need. And you've got some good people here already mm. who can pick up this, this, and this. That's when I sort of moved off. But just before I moved off, one of the roles they brought in was someone who was doing interim, wonderful Bob Tonkis. And then anyway, we sat for a couple of days. And I said, by the way, how much do you get paid for this? And he said, and he told me his day rate. And I said, how much? How <laughs> much? That? I said, I've been doing, so you're doing a third of my job for more than twice my salary. Said, yeah. He went, yeah. Yep. And I said, well, your expertise, Gary. That's what, that's what you meant to do. He said, you, you, you've, you've built up the experience. Go and cash it in. So that's what I did. I moved on to interim. And I got a phone call at the beginning of 2009 from one of the people who had, who'd worked with at Burdell on the Jarvis deal. And he very kindly said, look, some one of our clients, have, they've, got a, they've got a lend at the moment. There's a bit of a struggle going on. Things aren't quite as they should be. Can you go in and have a look? So I went in for what was meant to be three months. Anyway, two and a bit years later, I left. And that was working with the uh, with Douglas Bay Capital, who are now DB Advisors. And that was on the turnaround of TDG. Another tough gig. I, one thing I did, and again, you never, ever stop learning. I didn't really understand how private equity worked and how private equity thought before I went in there. And it was once I was in there and speaking with the DBA team and how they perceived things, how, how they saw value add and how, how things worked, that's when I really understood things. And they talked about the asset light model. And again, it was very, very commercial. I got involved in the property deals because all the properties were secured. So we had to have a good story for the lenders and that. And it really started to pull pull things together. And for me, it was a real compliment as well, because you know I stayed there for all that time. They were paying my day rate and it was, you know, I wasn't there for free. You know, I wasn't there yeah, free grass yeah, for nothing. Yeah. To the extent that I actually ended up working on a couple of other things with them, one of, one of them over in Tampa in Florida, which was okay nice. for well. So anyway, we, we, I left there and I was due to start another gig, which didn't quite come off. And I just got a phone call out the blue saying, Gary, have you ever thought of Oman? And funnily enough, I said, no. He said, well, there's a company in Oman. It turns out this fella who phoned me up had seen me speaking to conference a, couple, a few years before. I couldn't remember him. But John, and he was a lovely bloke. And he said, look, are you interested? 
So I went. I met with the CEO when he was on a stop off uh, in London for two hours. This sort of whistle stop interview. That was about 18th of May. Beginning of June, I went over to Oman for a, an interview with the main private equity investor and in, in the, the banks. And by the 30th of June, 2011, I was living in Oman. Lovely country, fantastic place. So I ended up there in a company that was meant to be doing an IPO. So that was my next special situation. The next special yeah, situation was from a turnaround Troubleshooting to an IPO. Yeah. Great, this is superb. Anyway, it didn't quite end up like that. It ended up that after about 12 months... I realized that the business was running out of cash because the industry was changing massively. It was in the PET industry, polyethylene terephthalate, which is the plastic that you make water bottles out of. And the industry, the margins back in 2009 had been at times $400 a tonne. China had realized there was a lot of money to be made and built some massive plants manufacturing PET. And at one point, the margin was down to $15 a tonne. At that sort of swing, you can't make money. And the business was running out of money fast. And so I worked with the with the investment bankers at, at, at Bank Muscat and the, the legal advisors that we had at AMJ. The one thing, one thing that really sort of took me quite aback, you'd think, oh, all right, I'm out on the, the far side of the Middle East here, you know, probably the, you know, Advisors aren't as sophisticated, whatever. I was getting advisors there that were as good as anything as you could get in, in the city or Wall Street. Were really, really good, especially the team at Bank Muscat. Absolutely fantastic. And on the day that we were due to default on the debt, we completed the refinancing. And again, that had taken a lot of persuasion of people, a lot of selling of the business. One thing I did learn on that one was really use your advisors well. Whilst you might think you can do everything, you can't. And if you've got a good team of advisors, use them. Make the absolute most of them. Don't try and think that you're the brightest person in the world. I can remember one, one meeting I went to in Qatar for a facility, and my very good friend, Vishal, who was sat there, and I started to talk, and I could tell that he was just wanting to take a bit of a lead on this whole thing. And he did, and I just sat back and left the floor to him. And we'd gone in having just been refused by credit and walked out with a $50 million facility. <laughs> and that's when you think, do you know what? That's how you use your advisors. It, he was in his element. The shell was just absolutely fantastic. We got this thing sorted. We started to get the business back onto its feet. But again, it was a, a very, very volatile time in the industry. And then 2014, the oil price collapsed. Now, I won't go into the, the boring nature of variable volatility on the uh, on the price of oil and the price of raw materials for the PET, but the price of PET plummeted. The problem was we'd bought a lot of inventory when the price was substantially higher and we were sat on the whole thing. Uh. And again, working with good people was the way that you get through these things and working as a team was how you get through. My very, very good friend, Arnold Fagard, and I spent many a long night just making things, just getting to know what was really going on and understanding the absolute heart of the business because it needed letters of credit. It wasn't the cash really that we need. It was letters of credit to buy the raw materials. We struggled our way through and... We got there. The business, the business pulled around. Now, just going back to what I mentioned about ethics, when I was at Jarvis, there were days when we didn't think we'd be able to pay the bills. When we thought the business is insolvent, we can't do it. It's just gone. We can't, uh, you know, uh. we can't pay the wages on Friday. But we thought, well, if we can get some more availability from the asset back facility, we'll be able to survive. But we can't do that without maybe 
twisting the truth a little bit or, or without doing this, without doing that. And we used to, me, Kate and Russell used to sit there and we'd have hour or two hour long conversations about the ethics of whether, you know, of what, of how we should present information, of what, at what point was that line? At what point was it yeah. doing the th- doing what was needed to keep the business going? And what point was it lying? And that is, that is the absolute crux of our profession. And I can remember one day being on the phone with the, with, with Banker and we had an incredibly stilted conversation because we were talking about it, right, there's disallowables and I had to send the report of disallowables. If I'd, had, if I'd sent the report in, our facility would have gone down such that we wouldn't have been able to pay the wages mm-hmm. and that would have been it. But I knew that we had some certificates coming in on Monday that would allow us to refloat the facility. And we had three days grace if there was a technical issue. Now, in truth, the report actually wasn't properly complete anyway. So I said to the banker, I said, look, we haven't quite completed the report yet, and I'm not sure when we'll have the information. He knew the situation, but neither of us were going to say it. But we had this conversation. He went, well, do you think on Monday you will have the information? Yes, I do think on Monday I will have the information. And he was taking a risk that if we'd gone bump over the weekend, mm. he would have had to answer some really, really serious questions. And he was taking it on trust that we would still be there on Monday. Mm. And we were. Take that trust away. Take, that, take those ethics away of doing the right thing. And we have nothing. We have absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, you know, that was something that that came all the way through. Now, one of the things when I, when I was a doctor, I felt there were certain. I had views on. Th- Me and the CEO used to have long discussions, and I had certain views on things, and he had certain views on things. I wasn't convinced that the business was really, really, really a going concern. He was, and that's you know, CEOs are going to. Treasurers can sometimes be a little bit less on the optimistic side, more what we feel is the realistic side. I said, look, if I, in my heart of hearts, don't believe that it's a going concern, and I've got no doubt that you genuinely do believe it, so we've just got a difference of, a, of, a, of an opinion there. If I don't feel ethically comfortable, I can't stay here. I can't stand in front of banks and in front of investors and ask them to put money into something where I don't think they will, they will get their money back or they'll get a return. And he said, look, that's your decision to make. That's, that's perfectly up to you. And so I said, look, all the very best of luck, but ethically, I can't, I can't continue with this. Mm. You know, like I say, we, we parted on very good terms. I went to Dubai to try and start up as an interim because there was no real interim market in Dubai. And I thought, I'm going to start one. Anyway, after a few weeks, it was quite clear that that probably wasn't going to happen. But coincidentally, I got a phone call from a contact of mine who said, Gary, who used an investment fund? He said, Gary, we've got an investment. It's been through a really, 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 really rough time. And basically, there's no one stupid enough to go in there. Would you do it? I said, why not? Why not? So I went into Arab Tech. And I think you mentioned before culture. And businesses have their own culture. But working in UAE, one of the things you notice is you've got people from all over the world. Whilst we all seem to be the same on the surface, there are different cultures and different ways of communicating. What you then find is that you might all be speaking English, but you all mean something completely different. And the nuances of how different nationalities and different cultures will say things, you really have to pick up on. You can't, I don't think you can survive for any length of time in, in the Middle If anyone's thinking of working in the Middle East, I'd say, yeah, go for it. Great. Mm-hmm. Bahrain, Qatar, all these places really super to work in. But 
you have to make yourself culturally aware from pretty much day one. You've got to understand the nuances of what people mean. And the Arabic nuances will be very different from the Indian nuances, which will be very difficult from American nuances or European nuances, or even the difference between, you know, the British and the French, you know, we all sort of have those slight, slight differences of how we do things and how we communicate and how, you know, I mean, I, I can remember one of my colleagues, Sahela, who he's, she'd explain these things to me of how for certain cultures, I was being too nice. Mm, and she said, mm. they're not going to listen to you, Gary, because unless you sort of, A, speak in words of one syllable and B, make it very, very clear to people and C, lay the law down, no one's going to really take you seriously. And that speaking in words of one syllable was an important one because many expats in the, in the region have a, an English vocabulary of maybe, yeah. say, 1,500 words. So if I start talking about the lugubrious nature of the, uh, the Antipodean way of working, they will go, yes. They will not quite understand it, but they will just say, hmm. yes. And I'll think they understood. You say they understood, but they won't understand the thing. And so it's like I can just about get by in French if I speak to a non-French speaker. But I can't get anywhere in French speaking to a French person because mm-hmm. they speak too quickly. The, the vocabulary that they're using is much, much broader than mine. They will use grammatical shortcuts. I'm just stuck. I can't understand. And you've got to understand that although everyone seems to speak English, they don't speak English like you speak English. Mm-hmm. The idioms, the, you know, sort of a especially when you're a Geordie. I mean, you know, some of the, no one's going to start a Geordie there, man. Um, so, <laughs> so it was, so you learn very, very quickly to pick up on just how people are feeling the body, the body language. It was a tough culture to work in Arab tech. I would probably say for the first time in my career, I, I could almost put that I failed. I didn't do what I set out to achieve. And that was in many ways kind of tough to take. But again, you can't win everyone. You can't win every single time there. And whilst we did get the business refinanced, it wasn't as I felt it should be, and it didn't really put the foot in the business on the foot in the ones to put the business on the foot on the foot. Yeah, it was meant to be. You say that you didn't. You, it wasn't five minutes. You were there two and a half years. Two and a half. Exactly. It's not like oh, okay, me and all. Yeah, no, it's not working. You know, a couple of months. Two and a half years. You did the job you could. And then I gave them a very, very best shot. We did a refinancing on uh, on bilaterals and kept the business afloat. It worked. It didn't work the way I wanted it to, but it worked. I knew there were people there who could, could manage the business. I mean, I mentioned my good friend Riyad. He was, you know, he's a super character and he knows his, his treasury stuff. So I knew that, look, he'll be able to carry this on. He's Palestinian. And he's, so he understands the, the region and the nuances of the mm-hmm. region. He used to sometimes advise me, you know, look, Gary, you're not quite getting to understand this bit, are you? Which was always fantastically helpful. And the two of us could work together brilliantly. It was a tough gig. And really, I sort of felt that it was probably time for me to come back. And bizarrely, I was sort of sat, so I had them in notice in, in the October and got given three months gardening leave, which is very kind. And so I sat there sort of looking at other things because there was another restructuring I was potentially going to. And if you remember, it was Douglas Bay, who I worked with on the TDG restructuring. Mm-hmm. They phoned me up. Hello, Gary, we've got another one here. It looks like there's a bit of a treasury issue. Would you happen to be available at the moment? So within two weeks, I was on flight back to the UK. I had a week to sort of get myself a car, a flat, and get settled back into Manchester. And on the 9th of December, 
started here. On the day the deal completed for, for Douglas Bay to acquire them, took over the, the new facility. Well, there are two volumes of it, but those just the, those the shortened version of the facility, slightly complex. But came in really as part of a team to to bring stability. And there's a number of us here of, of interims. William Stolbart came back in as executive chairman, brought a vast amount of expertise with him. Again, it's one of those things I mentioned about execution and knowing how things go on the ground. William knows his strategy. William's mm. a great mm. thinker, but he's probably also one of the very, very few executive chairman of a logistics company in the UK who also happens to have his class class one HGV license. <laughs> he's driven trucks himself. He spent a number of years in the in the early 70s as a driver. He knows what happens on the ground. So he knows how the business operates, mm. knows what the rights and wrongs are, you know, how you do things properly, how you don't do things properly. And that's that ability to understand how to make the strategy happen on a day-by-day basis is, is absolutely critical. And working with a fantastic CFO, Brian Corway, and this overall is a business where, again, I'm trying to achieve something, trying to put something in place I think we will do. It's, I mean, everybody knows Eddie Storbart. Everybody knows that the trucks that have got girls' names and everybody wants this business to succeed. And to be honest, you know, you'd think, oh, crikey, you're in a restructuring position in December. COVID goes and hits at the end of February. Crikey, what was that like? It was this business's finest hour. Mm. The business, it was, there was a determination in March of this year and, and April as the supermarket shelves are being emptied. There was a determination by this business not to let anyone down. I had to make sure that, that, that we, had the, we had the supply lines to keep the trucks fueled, that we had liquidity to pay the drivers. You know, I like to think I played my part, but when I look at my commercial colleagues and what they did and how they kept those supply lines running, because we're one of the biggest, maybe if not the biggest carrier for the supermarkets in this country, you know, that the likes of Tesco and Sainsbury's and everyone got the stock into the stores to fill those shelves as quickly as they did from panic buying, from when they, they really shouldn't have had empty shelves because people overreacted. But you know, it, it had to be, you know, that to maintain the confidence, yeah. people had to see stuff coming back on those shelves. And the drivers, the warehouse staff, Everyone played a fantastic part. So, you know, when my grandchildren say to me, Granddad, what did you do, <laughs> do, do during the COVID crisis? I'll be able to say, well, I sat and counted the money, but at least it kept the trucks running. Yeah, exactly. And again, one of the, you know, sometimes I interrupt people as Gary's got this great way of just walking us through your career and things. And as we look back and wrap up today's episode, people will connect you to on LinkedIn. And, you know, I think you've got some great stories to tell. And as I said before the show, we'll, we get involved in other stuff because you've got this depth of experience and interest level, which I, I find great. But it's like just going back and looking back over these, you know, you've got stuff from stuff in the Middle East. You've got stuff with troubled companies, troubleshooting and stuff. If you bring it together and look at, you know, your top two or three tips, people are listening today going, Actually, I'd like to do that sort of thing. Or, you know, maybe even relatively early, as I said, you know, you, you've been this quite early in your career, went into the troubleshooting phase. What would you say to them? You know, what, what are the bits of advice? You know, I, I love the bit earlier where you sort of said HR doesn't lead your career, you do, you know, and you take charge. But, you know, what are the three things you might say? First of all, and probably foremost, is learn the business. I mean, as a treasurer, it doesn't matter whether you're a troubleshooter, it doesn't matter whether you're, you're a career treasurer at the top of a, a large organisation. You have got to know and understand the business. Otherwise, you won't know and understand the financial risks that that business has that you're meant to be managing. And to do that, 
you need to have a good communications network around the business. You need to know how to find out what is really going on, whether what the risks are, what might be happening with there's an acquisition coming up, with a disposal. You need to find both by by formal methods, so your cash flow forecasting, how you structure your cash flow forecasting, how you make sure that it's efficient and timely, but also through the more if you like neural routes through getting to know people getting to speak to people and a bit of humility really 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 goes a long way i mean as i learned earlier in my career at tnn a bit of arrogance will kill you if you think you know it all you certainly do not so understand the business secondly only try not to engage on things you don't know very much about because you can end up just looking a bit daft so use your experience use your Use your qualifications, use what you've learned, but try and use it to make a a positive and constructive difference. Don't try to do other people's jobs for them. Listen, think of how can I add value to this organization? Because the organization only wants you there if you can add value. You can have 100 degrees, you can have a PhD, but if you can't bring value to the organization, it's all worthless. I'm guessing that the final one is get a good team around you. I've been to organizations where I've had good people around me and we've achieved things I never, ever thought we would. We've just done things that have been brilliant. There have been others when I haven't had the right people around me and it becomes almost impossible. People are absolutely key. And that will be people both within the organization and also your external advisors. You'll get to know people you know, external advisors. And if you find a good one, you hang on to them. Um, Don't yeah. let them go. Amazing. And that was uh, Mr. Slaughter out for the night. Thanks very much. That's it. Basically, three amazing pieces of advice there just to finish off. So I uh, will come back to team building, but know your people, know where your cash is around the business, which will then give you... An, and then feeds into the value piece. And the value piece is then get a great team around you. You've had some, as you say, you mentioned there throughout the, the interview, a number of different people, which is fantastic. The key thing, I think, is anyone listening to today's podcast, I mean, we, we've gone over our time. Why? Because you've got so much value to add. And, you know, I think people need to, you know, have a bit of a longer uh, commute because, you know, there's no, there's none of those bits that you can like leave on the cutting room floor. People are going to listen and know that actually that's where they need to take their careers. So guys, as always, we'll put Gary's uh, LinkedIn profile in the show notes so you can connect to him if it's worthwhile. Gary, thank you for today. You've been an absolute superstar as always, sir. Thank you very much, Mike. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you.